0: This is Scott Fraser, and I've been given the privilege of teaching this lesson for Cedar Fort Publishings Come Follow Me with David Ridge's series. I'm the author of Where Science Meets God: 12 Ways Science Reinforces LDS Doctrine and Angry with God: Understanding the Rules of Earth Life. Today we will be discussing 3 Nephi chapter 17 through 19. First, I would like to do an overview and then pick out a few other choice doctrines and learnings that we get from these chapters. I love chapters 17 and 18 because they are actually rather amusing, and they indicate the love the Savior has for his people. In Third Nephi chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, we read, Behold, now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked round about again on the multitude, and he said unto them, Behold, my time is at hand. I perceive that ye are weak, that ye cannot understand all my words, which I am commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. Now let me add an aside here. In defense of the Nephites, the Savior had been teaching some fairly complex doctrine. In chapter 15, the Savior had taught that the Mosaic law was at an add end, but that the covenant with the children of Abraham was not. Also, in the end of chapter 16, the Savior had just quoted three verses from the book of Isaiah, about Jerusalem, a place none of them had ever seen. So we really can't blame them for being a little confused. But I digress. In verse 3 we read, Therefore go ye unto your homes, and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name, that ye may understand, and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. But now I go unto the Father, and also to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel, for they are not lost unto the Father, for he knoweth whither he hath taken them. Now anybody can tell that the Savior is saying his goodbyes. In verse 1, he basically says, well, it's time to go. In verse 3, he gives everyone their assignments to go home and prepare for tomorrow's meetings. In verse 4, he says, I have a meeting with my Father, and then I have the lost tribes to visit. I imagine that if Jesus had worn a wristwatch, he would have been looking at it and shaking his head. If he'd had car keys, they would have been in his hand. After all, he has a meeting scheduled with the Father, and does anyone want to be late for an appointment with God? These verses are classic for the I've really got to go message, and I have used their modern-day equivalents many times myself. Then Jesus looked at the people, and they did look steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. And he said unto them, Behold, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. What I think went unrecorded may have been Jesus' next words. Essentially, you know, I've got a few minutes to spare. My father is probably running a little late. And the lost tribes of Israel have waited for centuries, so they can wait a little longer. Then Jesus goes on to heal all the sick among the people, many of whom took the time to kneel and worship at his feet. Then he asked them to bring all the little children to him. The Savior prayed with the people. Then he took the little children and blessed them one by one. Now, given that there was a total of about 2,500 people, Jesus' one-by-one blessing was probably just a touch on the head, but it would still have taken some time with that many children. Then Jesus had a concourse of angels descend, encircle their children with fire, and minister unto them. In chapter 18, Jesus administers the sacrament to his disciples, and then to the multitude. He explains the sacrament and teaches a number of other doctrines. Finally, at the end of chapter 18, fully two chapters later, the Savior starts his, I've really got to go this time, apologies once again. In verse 27, he says, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I give you another commandment, and then I must go unto my Father, that I may fulfill other commandments which he hath given me. And then verse 35, And now I go unto the Father, because it is expedient that I should go unto the Father for your sakes. In the beginning of chapter 17, the Savior stated he had to go, and then he delayed his departure for, what do you think, five to six hours, because he didn't want to disappoint his people. What a softie. Don't you wonder if Jesus was worried about his father, who might have been sitting in a conference room waiting all that time? Then at the end of the day, Jesus essentially declares, I really have to go into my father this time. He had to be running extremely late by this time. In summary... These two chapters in Nephi give an account of one of the most human moments of the Savior's ministry. I have been late for more than a few appointments in my life, and I've spoken similar words as the Savior did in these two chapters. Fortunately, it appears that if you are ministering to people, being late is okay, and thank goodness for that. Before moving on to our next gospel topic, I would like to relate to you one of my favorite stories about a scripture. Do you have stories about certain scriptural verses that you never forget? I have a favorite story about 3rd Nephi 17, verse 24. Years ago, I was teaching these same chapters in a gospel doctrine class. In this part of the account, the little children of the Nephites have been gathered together. Jesus blessed them, and then angels descended from heaven and, I quote, encircled those little ones about, and they were encircled about with fire, and the angels did minister unto them. I made the statement that the angels, in ministering to these little children, taught them as our primary teachers do each week. Several older brethren disagreed with me, saying that teachers simply taught, they did not minister. Sister Michelle, our soft spoken, recently released primary president, raised her hand and declared, in no uncertain terms, that our primary teachers minister to their classes each and every week. A moment of silence passed, stifling my laughter. I asked if there were any more comments. Not surprisingly, there weren't. Never mess with a primary president when it comes to her primary children or their teachers. Now I would like to move on to the gospel topic of Blessed are ye if you have no disputations among you. At the end of chapter 18, the Savior gives some very specific counsel about allowing people to come to the chapel to worship. In verses 22 and 23, he states that the members should meet together often and I quote ye shall not forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together, but ye shall pray for them, and shall not cast them out in verse twenty eight Jesus then gives instructions about the sacrament, and I quote that ye shall not suffer any one knowingly to partake of my flesh and blood unworthily when ye shall minister it. but in case he wasn't clear in verses twenty two and twenty three he repeats himself in verse thirty, nevertheless. Ye shall not cast him out from among you, but ye shall minister unto him. Then, in verse 31, the Savior clarifies what should be done with unrepentant followers. And I quote, But if ye repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people, that he may not destroy my people. For behold, I know my sheep, and they are numbered. Then, in case you didn't catch it the first two times, the Savior repeats himself yet again in verse 32. And I quote, Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out of your synagogues or your places of worship, for unto such shall ye continue to minister. Usually, the Savior's teachings are not so tiresome. So for a few verses, it is a bit of a mystery why he felt the need to repeat himself twice. But then he gives us the background and explains himself in verse 34, and I quote, And I give you these commandments because of the disputations which have been among you. Ah, now it makes sense. It appears that members had been arguing about whether or not they could cast difficult members or visitors out of their chapels, so the Lord needed to make his doctrine very clear. I always pictured Jesus rubbing his forehead at this point as he says in a low exasperated voice, and blessed are ye if you have no disputations among you. From the tone of those verses, I have decided the disputations among his membership probably give the Savior headaches. That's pure speculation but it appears that there are great blessings in store if we can simply not argue with one another. I would now like to discuss the existence of sacred words that cannot be written. In 3rd Nephi, chapter 17, verses 15 through 17, we read, And when he had said these words, he himself also knelt upon the earth. And behold, he prayed unto the Father, and the things which he prayed cannot be written, and the multitude did bear record who heard him. And after this manner do they bear record. The eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard before, so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. And no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of men conceive so great and marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak. And no one can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father. In the margins of my scriptures, I have written why not in big letters. I find this very frustrating. Mormon or the Nephites of the time tell us how great and marvelous were the words of the Savior in his prayers. But, sorry, we can't tell you what they were. When I first read these verses, I thought it might have simply been a translation problem. We speak English, which has a written word for every spoken word. But in 3 Nephi 5:18, Mormon admits that he is not able to write down all the words of his language. He says, and I quote, And I know the record which I make to be a just and true record. Nevertheless, there are many things which, according to our language, we are not able to write. Having spoken and written English all my life, it is hard for me to imagine any words which cannot be written, spoken, or understood by others. The last part of this scripture seems especially taunting. And no one can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father. It's one of the few times I've wanted to yell at my scriptures that, obviously, we can't conceive of the joy because you're not going to tell us what was said. It's rather like Mormon telling us how great some cookies tasted as he jams the last one in his mouth. But apparently, this wasn't just a translation problem. Mormon tells us how great and marvelous were the words of the Savior's prayer in chapter 19 as well. In verses 32 through 34, we read, And tongue cannot speak of the words which he prayed, neither can be written by man the words which he prayed. And the multitude did hear, and do bear record, and their hearts were open, and they did understand in their hearts the words which he prayed. Nevertheless, so great and marvelous were the words which he prayed, that they cannot be written, neither can they be uttered by man. Not only is Mormon forbidden from writing the words, men are forbidden from uttering the words. Mormon just spent six verses making his point, so maybe this is an aspect of faithful living that we should better understand. Apparently, the Nephites were righteous and faithful enough to, one, be able to see miracles that no one in Jerusalem got to see, and two, hear teachings that no one in Jerusalem got to hear. In the last two verses of today's lesson, 3 Nephi chapter 19, verses 35 and 36. It says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying, he came again to the disciples and said unto them, So great faith have I never seen among all the Jews. Wherefore, I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. Verily, I say unto you, There are none of them that have seen so great things as ye have seen, neither have they heard so great things as ye have heard. I admit that I am envious of the Nephites. I would love to know what doctrines they were taught. I look forward to the day that I can hear those teachings. The doctrine of keeping sacred things sacred is taught throughout the Scriptures. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, 114-117, to we read about a vision that Joseph Smith and Signe Rigdon had seen. And I quote, But great and marvelous are the works of the Lord and the mysteries of his kingdom which he showed unto us, which surpasses all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion, which he commanded us we should not write while we're yet in the Spirit, and are not lawful for man to utter. Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves. Now I know the requirements. If I love God and purify myself before him, like the Nephites of long ago, I will someday be granted the privilege of seeing and hearing his great and marvelous works, as well as the mysteries of his kingdom. It appears that I just must be patient. Now let's move on to the granting of the Holy Ghost to the Nephites. The next morning, after the day that Jesus had had such a hard time getting away, the Nephites gather again, except this time there were a lot more of them, Word had gotten out about what was happening in Bountiful, and Nephites turned out in droves. One can hardly blame them. I certainly would have turned out too. There were so many people, they were divided into twelve groups so they could be taught. Remember, no microphones or speakers were available at that time, and a voice can only carry so far. After teaching and prayers in Third Nephi 19.11, Nephi is baptized. He then baptizes the other eleven disciples that Jesus has chosen. By the way, as an aside, you will notice that these twelve disciples are never referred to as apostles. All the apostles were still in Jerusalem. Jesus picked twelve brethren to lead the church in the Americas, but they were not apostles. It is probably safe to say that all twelve disciples were rebaptized, since they were all faithful church members. Their baptisms were symbolic of the new life that they would lead as the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. Yet another aside, there was a time in early church history that rebaptism was very popular. Members would repent of a sin and be re baptized so they could start over. It got so crazy that the church finally had to put a stop to the rebaptisms, explaining that, under normal circumstances, only one baptism was needed in your life. But for the Nephites and their own church history, this was not a normal circumstance. The church was being reestablished by the Savior Himself, so the rebaptism was symbolic of the new church, its leadership, and the arrival of the Holy Ghost. Because indeed, after the twelve disciples were baptized, the Holy Ghost fell upon them. Now instead of the little children, the twelve disciples were encircled about as if they were by fire. Yet a third side note. What is something that looks like fire but isn't? Acts 2.3 describes the Pentecost, where we read of cloven tongues like as a fire that sat on each person who was filled with the Holy Ghost. Jesus told the Nephites he would baptize them with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Some day I do want to see what fire is being described here. So getting back to the account, angels descended once again, but this time it was to minister to the twelve disciples. Jesus then appears and spends the next eleven chapters teaching the Nephites even further. In chapter 18, the twelve disciples were given the Melchizedek priesthood to be able to bestow the Holy Ghost on church members. We can be sure that this happened after Jesus ascended. In the first chapter of 4th Nephi, we are told that people were being baptized into the church and that they did also receive the Holy Ghost. As it was in the New Testament, having the Holy Ghost first appear to the church was a very important event in the Book of Mormon history. I would now like to move on to our next topic, the concept of praying for or praying not for the world. In 3rd Nephi 19, verse 29, Jesus Christ is praying for his chosen disciples in the Americas. He says, Father, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world, because of their faith, that they may be purified in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one. Now, this is not the first time the Savior makes such a request. During his intercessory prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus offered a similar request for his twelve disciples in the old world that he was preparing to leave behind. In John 17, verse 9, he states, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. In both cases, Jesus Christ specifies that he is not praying for the world. Doesn't it seem a bit strange? In the same intercessory prayer, the Savior says a few more things about the world that are not so complimentary. Speaking of his twelve apostles in the old world, in John 17, verses 14 through 16, we read, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I have heard many public prayers in which the world is prayed for, but I am not so sure this is appropriate. In one of my books, I mentioned that in our prayers, we should only ask for those things which the Lord can provide us. There are rules that God must follow in giving blessings. I'm sure it's very frustrating for him to be asked for things he cannot provide. For example, you shouldn't ask God to override the agency of a loved one and force him back into church. You also shouldn't ask God for great blessings for a person who is rebellious, sinful, and totally unrepentant how can God bless such a person and follow the rule that blessings come with obedience? Expanding upon that thought, how can God bless a world full of people who are rebellious, sinful, and totally unrepentant? I find it instructive that the Savior, who loves everyone in the world, clarifies to the Father that He is not praying for the world. Maybe we should follow His example and pray only for those that the Father has given to us out of the world. In these last three verses... The Savior mentions three times that neither he nor those who have been given him are of the world. Maybe our prayers should be more specific as well. Those who he has given us and who we love can be kept from becoming of the world. I don't believe that God can bless the whole world in its present state. The blessings we receive come because we don't become part of the world. Though we must live in the world, we shouldn't be of the world. Pray for those people that God has given you either as family or friends. The world as a whole will go on as it chooses to go. So that is all I have prepared for you today. I hope this lesson was enjoyable. Again, this is Scott Fraser, and I appreciate your listening to this episode of the Cedar Fort Publishing's podcast, Come Follow Me with David Ridges. Next week, we will be studying 3 Nephi 20-26, which includes more of the Savior's teachings to the Nephites. Take care. And may God bless you in your studies. Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CFPODCAST to save 15% on your entire order. That's C as in cedar and F as in fort, podcast, for 15% off your entire order.